0: Well, this morning we're starting a new series on the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. Jonah is the only one of the 12 minor prophets, the book of the 12, the only one cited by the Lord Jesus Christ, who cites it, in fact, at some length. Jesus, who said that a wicked generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And that as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, Jesus says, so shall the Son of Man be assigned unto this generation. And finally, that the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But something greater than Jonah is now here. So clearly, this is a book which is of some importance to our Lord himself, to his self-understanding, and to the nature of his own ministry and mission. So I encourage you to be reading it. It's short. It's easy to follow. Children, you can read it too. You can follow the book. Everyone kind of knows the story, but I think by the time we're done with this series, we're going to realize everyone kind of doesn't really know the whole story. The book is accessible to children, but it's not a simple Child story or a fable. Even the, even the famous big fish is not something the author is distracted with. That the fish is mentioned twice, right? and Jonah's encounter with the fish is told in this very simple, understated, matter of fact, journalistic way. On the other hand, the book is about a lot of important things, some of which I hope to introduce today. It's a book about God. It's a book about the nature of grace. It's a book about mission. It's a book about conversion, true and false. It's a book about race. It's a book about nationalism. It's a book about justice. It's a book about mercy. And thus, it's a book about true spirituality and more than that, much more. The book has this very simple, elegant structure. In chapters 1 and 2, Jonah flees. And then in almost identical reverse sequence, the events of chapters 3 and 4 undo the results of that flight. Though what they do to Jonah personally is left as an open question. Now, it's often been noted, and rightly I think, that the two halves of the book depict Jonah as both brothers in the parable of the prodigal son. Right In the first half of the book, he's the prodigal fleeing. Although even as prodigal, he's got the other brother in his heart too. But he's mainly the prodigal. And then in the second half, he plays mainly the older brother. It's a very important insight because... Since there's plenty of both prodigal and older brother in all of us, the book proves then to be profoundly instructive. I would say it's more than instructive. I would say it's provocative, even scandalous, despite this deceptively simple story. So with that, we're going to make three points. We're just going to sort of introduce the the terrain today. They're They're on the insert in the bulletin. Jonah, Nineveh, flight. Jonah and Nineveh in flight. So, first Jonah, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. So, who was Jonah? He was was an 8th century B.C. prophet. You know, somewhere around 750, somewhere in there. Give or take a decade or two on either side. He's a prophet of Israel, of the northern kingdom. And we know about Jonah... Outside of this book, which bears his name, we know about him from only one other reference in the Bible. It's a reference from 2 Kings 14. He prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II. And in 2 Kings, this is what we're told. That Jeroboam restored the boundaries of Israel in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, Amittai the prophet from Gath-Heper. Now, just as an aside, gath hepher Jonah's hometown, is very close, walking distance from Nazareth, a couple of miles. So one would think Jesus would have heard a good bit about the prophet Jonah when Jesus was a young boy growing up. He was the local prophet. It may have something to do with Jesus citing him. So, what we see from the 2 Kings text is this. Jonah prophesied that the Lord would expand the boundaries of Israel under Jeroboam. And the text there, in in 2 Kings again, I'm in 2 Kings 14 here, the text there says this, continues and says this, The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them. By the hand of Jeroboam. So, what happened under Jonah's ministry is this sovereign act of God's free and abundant mercy to undeserving Israel. And then, under that word, Israel expands and grows by the word of the prophet. Now, you have to remember, Jonah really stands in for Israel throughout the whole book. He's kind of a foil for Israel, and in that sense, he's a foil for you and me. But it would be clear from what we see in 2 Kings 14 that Jonah supports this military expansion. The aggressive militarism, the territorial expansion, the newfound prosperity of the nation under Jeroboam. How could he not support it? He prophesied it. So he is, like all Jews, a patriot. He's a fervent nationalist. Who wouldn't be? God made a covenant with your nation. He sees the world from a distinctly Israeli-centric stance, right? Israel first. No globalism, no internationalism for this guy. We're the covenant nation. And he clearly would vigorously endorse all of Israel's national military actions and aspirations, at least at this time. And that way there's some similarity to evangelists' over the decades, who show up at the White House and bless everything American. I mean, after all, God has, in fact, shown blessing to Israel according to the very word of Jonah. I mean, there doesn't seem to be anything particularly um, suspect about this, right? But the rest of the book is going to show us just how narrow, how constricted, right? how provincial and Twisted and distorted, Jonah's view of God actually is. So I have a lot to say about Jonah, but that's all for now. Um, The second point here is Nineveh. So this is verse 2. The word which, which comes to Jonah is this. Go. Literally, that word is arise. Get up. Arise. Go to the great city of Nineveh. So Nineveh is a royal city. It would later become the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It's a residence of kings. It's, it's up in northern Iraq today. It's nearby what is today Mosul. It's up on the Tigris River. And it's about like 600 miles, five 600 miles from there to northern Israel where Jonah would be. So it's important to get a feel for, for these people. Right? Assyria is the dominant world power at the time. Militarily, culturally unrivaled. Even the word of God, even God himself in this book, calls Nineveh twice, it might be three times actually, but it's at least twice, the great city. Get up and go to the great city. You know know what else this great city was? Cruel and violent. The empire, one scholar says, has as gory and as blood-curdling a history as we know. Beside the standard burning of cities and flooding the whole landscape with corpses, they would cut off limbs for sport. They would decapitate and then force the family members to parade the head of their loved ones around on a pole. They would tear out tongues, the Assyrians. They would rip your lips off. Right. They would skin you and burn you alive. And the emperors made these massive stone panels, these stone reliefs, depicting and celebrating in public, right, for time immemorial, the gruesome torture. They were, needless to say, a feared and a hated enemy of Israel. And the Israelite kings by this time have built up a long history of paying tax and tribute to the empire, essentially making Israel a client state. Of this murderous regime. Now, just a couple of decades after Jonah, maybe 30 years, right? This Assyrian Empire in 722 BC would invade and destroy northern Israel. And on top of that, a generation or two later, the prophet Nahum would arise. Another one of those little minor prophet books. One chapter you could read, Nahum. He pronounces an oracle of judgment against them, against Nineveh and Assyria, promising divine destruction and complete and utter desolation. Right? So to put it mildly, Jonah, the patriotic nationalist, would have loathed and hated and absolutely detested these people. You think you hate your political enemies? This is animosity, which would be hard for us to imagine. And on top of that, this is animosity in Jonah's mind, which surely has divine sanction. These were the enemies of Israel, and thus they were the enemies of God. And their doom would be sealed by the word of the prophet Nahum, by the word of the Lord. It's always easier to hate people. When you're sure God is on your side. And Jonah hates these people, and he's absolutely sure God is on his side. And it is to these people, to these people that God says to Jonah, get up, arise, go to the great city of Nineveh. And so hearing these words would be a shock to Jonah. Right? One's first reaction to this would just be pure bewilderment. You know, the prophets would occasionally utter oracles against the Gentile nations around Israel. But rarely were they physically actually sent to those nations. And never, never were they ever sent into the heart of an empire of unmitigated evil. So the call of Jonah, his prophetic call, is unprecedented. There is nothing like it. Now, you have to understand this. To to Jonah, this summons would be a betrayal of his own country. It would be repugnant to his very bones. It would be akin to going to preach the gospel to, say, Isis. It'd be like getting that call. Arise, go to northern Syria, preach the gospel to ISIS. Or being a Jew in Berlin, say, in the 1930s, and being sent to preach to the Nazi regime. These are not your friendly, unbelieving neighbors. Now, it's true. Jonah was to preach, notice the text says, against it. Because the text says the wickedness of Nineveh came up to God, arose up before God. So the wickedness of Nineveh is never papered over. It must be preached against. It stinks, literally in this case, to the highest heavens. So we might think that Jonah would not be so adamant about going. After all, he gets to go to his enemies and say, God's judgment is going to be poured out on you. But he is adamant about going, not going. Very adamant. And that brings us to the third point here, flight. Flight. The prophet of God arose, and he, he ran away from the Lord, and he heads for Tarshish. Now, now, nobody's really sure where Tarshish is, but we're pretty sure it's out on the western end of the Mediterranean, out by, like, Spain. Right? So the, the whole idea is as far away as he could get. The point is, this is a parody of his calling. He does the exact opposite of what he's asked. He seeks, the text says, to get as far away from the presence or the face of God as possible. And to emphasize this, to make it clear, the text tells you this twice. Once at the beginning of verse 3, once at the end. Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. Then he sailed for Tarshish and ran away from the Lord. And in between, he goes down to a little port town called Joppa. He was to arise to get up, but he will continually in the narrative go down down to Joppa, down below deck, down into the depths of the sea. And so he goes down to Joppa, he finds a ship bound for Tarshish, he pays the fare, he gets on board. He's like Adam and Eve in the garden, right? He flees from the face or the presence of God. Now, there are lots of ways to flee from God, beloved, and many of us are very skilled at it. We know how to flee his presence. The prodigal, the prodigal son fled God's presence by breaking all the rules. The older brother, he fled God's presence by keeping all the rules, at least outwardly. Flannery O'Connor has this great line in one of her short stories where she talks about the blackness of this person's soul who had figured out that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. It's a remarkable line. It's scandalous at first, right? But she knows it's a profound anthropological insight, right? Like if you don't actually want to deal with the presence and the face of God, just keep the rules, Everybody will acknowledge that you're civil and moral and a wonderful religious character. And there are people that figure this out. (laughs) They figure it out. There's lots of ways to run. We're runners of different kinds. So why does Jonah, who is really the prodigal here, more than the older brother type, at least at this point, mostly prodigal, I mean, he surely knows it's impossible to escape the presence of God. It's not like he hadn't read Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Right? If I make my bed in the depths. If I settle on the far side of the sea. The Mediterranean. If I go all the way to Tarshish. Even there you're going to find me. No, I don't, I don't think Jonah forgot about the fact that. The God he serves as a prophet in Israel. Is omnipresent. There is a number of educated guesses we can make from Scripture, but we've already seen one, which we'll come back to. The absolute hatred for the Assyrians. But remember, again, he is called to denounce them, so you think that might entice him, perhaps. But it doesn't. Maybe it's fear. Right? The fact that this would be, by all human reckoning, basically a death sentence. Right? You're not just going to show up in the streets of Assyria and start denouncing their practices and the empire and just walk away physically unscathed. Right? It would be terrifying to get this word. I think a key, a key to get this lies in his understanding, the text says, that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Right? He's, when he leaves his post as a prophet, he's leaving that assembly of, of men in Israel, the prophets, who were lifted up into God's heavenly council. Who were intimate with Yahweh face to face and who heard his own word and then spoke it to the people. Jonah no longer wants this job. He doesn't want this vocation of being a prophet. So he has to get out of the land where Yahweh's presence is concentrated. But still, still... I think we can dig a little deeper. In the book, we'll do this. We will learn. We can still ask why. And we're going to learn later in the book. It's, it's not going to be unclear by the end. But let's just get it out in the open here. Jonah has an inkling of what God is like. Obviously, he's, he's in the covenant. He's in Israel. He's a prophet. But he lacks real delight. He lacks a real rich comprehension and joy in God's goodness and mercy and love. Now, that might sound kind of boilerplate, but we'll see that's not harmless. So at this point, though he's a prophet, he's really a kind of half-believer at this point. A kind of half-believer. He affirms a lot of true stuff. But when push comes to shove, right, when the cost gets too high, he does what a lot of us tend to do. He reverts back to nature. He reverts back to a sort of calculating who's deserving and who's not deserving. Right? He reverts back to nature or law of some kind and not to grace. That's his instinct. He's a moralist. When mercy, mercy is costly, everybody loves justice. So it's, it's mercy And grace for me, for Israel, but justice for those detestable, wicked Assyrians, right? What what precisely is Jonah repressing here and confusing about God? It's this. He knows the possibility, the live option of him preaching to them resulting in their repentance, All prophecy, and this is often unstated or implied, but all prophecy holds out the condition or the promise of being changed or revoked depending on the response to the prophetic word. Listen to Jeremiah 18. Very important word for the book of Jonah. Jeremiah 18, the prophet says this, If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation or kingdom that I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent, and I will not inflict on it the disaster that I planned. Jonah hates this. He knows he's going to preach against it, but he knows if they repent, God will relent. And chapter 4 makes this explicit. Jonah hates this. He hates the possibility of God's mercy being extended to these horrific enemies of all that is good. He is the man in the parable, in the gospel lesson, right? the unforgiving servant who has himself received lavish, infinite mercy and then insists on exacting his pound of flesh from those who owe him. He is that guy, and so are we. He is the Pharisee telling God just how devout he is and giving thanks to God that he's not like those publicans, those Assyrians over there. Even as prodigal, even as running, he's still got that older brother in him. There's a serious disorder here. The prophet of God has forgotten the original promise to Abraham. Right, that all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through Abraham's seed. He has forgotten that the Lord loves the nations. Yes, the Lord loves Israel. Yes, the Lord chose Israel. But he loves the nations, even vile empires. Jonah has his own little list of, people, of nations that are on most favored nation status with God. And the Assyrian nations are not on it. But God doesn't have that list. God blesses Israel so that he might, through Israel, bless the nations. Listen to Psalm 67. Puts it beautifully in a very short order. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on the earth and your salvation among all nations. Jonah is either unaware of this Or he's forgotten this, or he's suppressing this, right? And on top of this, he's also forgotten a stunning word from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24, listen to this, and look who is included among the nations. Isaiah 24. In that day, Isaiah says, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Blessed be Egypt, my people. Blessed be Assyria, my handiwork. And blessed be Israel, my inheritance. This this is like promising blessing on a confederation of mass child killers to Jonah. I don't have the language to express how deeply repugnant this is to him. On one level, of course, Jonah knows all of this, just like we all know it. Of course he knows it. But deep down, if you you scratch down there, he resents it. Right? Deep down, it is often for us, gospel for me, law for thee. Right? Yes, I needed mercy at one time. I was outside of Christ. Now I'm in Christ and I can start carving the world up into the righteous and the unrighteous with me on the side of the white hats and everybody else on the side of the black hats. Yes, yes, I acknowledge that I needed mercy. But now basically we operate by something like law. Right? Our sins, we want them forgiven. But the really, really evil people, you know our enemies... We want justice for them. This is the default setting in Israel. And it's Jonah's default, and it is often our default. And Israel's covenant status, her nationalism, her religiosity, Israel's patriotism, its prosperity, its heritage, its newly enlarged borders, they all fostered this narrow-minded hypocrisy playing out in the depths of Jonah's heart, not visible to anybody, of course. And lest you think this is harmless, it isn't. This is the stuff, and we've talked about this a lot here, right? This is the stuff that God, God incarnate killed. Let me remind you of a couple things Jesus did in his public ministry. right? The one greater than Jonah Jesus, he spoke of two northern prophets. He almost certainly has Jonah in mind with these examples. He spoke of two northern prophets whose ministry preceded Jonah's and whose ministry showed what Jonah's ministry could have been. Here's what Jesus said in a synagogue one day. I assure you, there were many widows in Israel, lots of deserving Jewish widows in Elijah's time, Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, a Gentile widow. And then he goes on and says, and there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elijah, the prophet. Elijah and Elijah, right? A generation or two before Jonah. Northern prophets. Yet not one of these with leprosy was cleansed. Only name in the Syria. Not one Imagine standing up in a synagogue, speaking to to, to the Jewish people, saying, not one of your widows, not one of your leprous people were healed, but the mercy of God went to the Gentiles in those days. And for this little reminder from Jesus, we are told that the crowd in the synagogue, the religious people like us, were filled with wrath and sought to kill him. Just touch somebody where they really live. Usually for us, it's our, our politics or our nation. Right? They wanted to kill Jesus. Mercy for us. Fantastic. And for the world, sure, in principle, we're for that. Especially the world we like. You know, maybe the people who, through no fault of their own, the little children, we can shed a sentimental tear, we can watch a video, right? But that's fine. We all want that. But mercy for the Democrats, or if you're on the other side, mercy for Trump, or mercy for abortionists, or rioters, or cultural Marxists, or actual Marxists, or mercy for nations that are actually slaughtering Christians, or mercy for racists, or mercy for duplicitous, lawless, lying American or anti-American politicians, well, mercy for this governor, or for that governor, or for our actual enemies, or for those who actually curse us, or for Nazis or neo-Nazis, or mercy for Assyrians in Nineveh, Just suggest mercy here. And it turns us into the murderous crowd that sought to kill Jesus. I mean, enough with this crazy mercy for your enemy stuff. I was talking to someone at Presbytery this weekend. I said, when you see your enemies, political enemies, whether they be social or cultural enemies, if your first, second, third, fourth, and fifth instinct is Hatred, law, politics, they must be opposed, they must be defeated. Hatred, law, politics, they must be opposed, they must be defeated. Then your soul is malformed and badly so. Because the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ, his first instinct is mercy. He weeps over the city that's about to crucify him. And says, I often longed and longed and longed to gather you like, a, like chicks under the, the wings of the hen." This does not mean we don't love justice, we don't work for cultural reformation, or any of that stuff. It just means, the question that the book of Jonah puts to us is, what's your first instinct when God says, hey, how about the Assyrians? We know what Jonah's is. No way. There are lines. there There are boundaries. I've got rules. Jonah is a prophet of God, and he barely knows him. He barely knows him. He knows just enough about God's mercy to really deep down despise it. And you know, in that sense, he could be advanced on many of the church's half-believers. Right? This goes back to the gospel lesson right, to our own hearts. We have to consider the costliness of the infinite mercy that we've received. But deep down we think, well, we didn't really need that much mercy because we weren't really that bad. They're really bad, right? And then having received that mercy, we're called to show that mercy to all the world. There's a wonderful um, text in Second Peter, where he says, "If you forget, if you forget your former you know, purification from your sins, if you just forget what God has done for you." It says, then you'll be blind or short-sighted about the future. You forget that infinite cost by which you were redeemed in Jesus Christ. And then you start to view the world in a kind of blind, distorted way. And in that blind, distorted way, your first and second instincts are not right. So, you can kind of see where the book's going to go. It's going to be a very challenging book, in in fact. In fact, Jonah... It's one of those books that will, I think, uh, probably uh, might, might create a little controversy. But here's the good news. Here's the gospel. I want you to hear this, because this is really important. Oh, let me give you an example of this before I do this. I heard a, I heard a, uh, a podcast this week, um, and it was remarkable. It was an African-American man, um, and he had over the years, over the decades decided that he was going to go to KKK rallies, right? And he was going to, at some great personal risk to his safety, by the way, um, try to talk to them, try to find ways to have a conversation, try to find ways to listen and let them build a bond so they could listen back to him. And he tells a story. I think it's on the Veritas forum. You can find it. Um, But here's the thing. With a lot of fits and starts and a lot of failures... It's not, it's not a simple romance story. But with, with, with his effort over the decades, he has pried 200 people out of the KKK. See, that's a gospel response. Right? There, there are not two options in front of you, us or them. There's I can make enemies into friends. I can make enemies into friends. I can go at some real personal cost to me and turn enemies into friends. And on the podcast I listened to, the second guest was a former KKK member who had now become one of his best friends and who was in his daughter's wedding. Right, right? Mercy does strange things. And mercy for enemies does strange and wonderful things. Right? That's the gospel. The God of mercy, the Lord of all the nations, the God that Jonah is fleeing from, does not exclude us, Jonas. Right? He doesn't exclude us half-believers or us prodigals or us older brothers, us synagogue-goers who would seek to be enraged to kill Jesus were we in the crowd that morning, us inveterate Pharisees who are constantly resorting back to law from grace, whose instincts are always grace for us, law for thee. The good news is for us, not just for Nineveh not just for enemies, right? God chases you down in his mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He chases us down and he wins us by the same mercy that we often refuse to show to others and especially to our enemies. For in this God, right, this God who reveals himself most fully in the cross of Christ, right, in the one who said, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In this God, and here's the whole sermon in four words. In one sense, this is the whole book of Jonah in four words mercy triumphs over judgment. Right? In our God, mercy triumphs over. Evil is not washed away. Right? God will eventually judge Assyria. <laughs> but not after 100 years of offering them mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Get this, though. It triumphs even over well-deserved judgment, right? This is good news. It's good news for Jonah. It's good news for Nineveh. It's good news for you and for me, and it's good news for the whole world, right? Praise be to God for his free and abundant mercy. Flee into it. Flee into it. Don't flee away from it. Amen.